You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Well, it's a huge honor and privilege for me to join you in this conference. I'm probably old enough to be the father or grandfather of most of you. It was nice of you to let one of the old guys in. I'm, I'm really grateful. We uh, turn in Scripture now to John chapter 4, God seeking true worshipers, not true worship, true worshipers. And I'm going to take the time to read the first 42 verses. If you have your Bible, either turn to it or turn it on, as the case may be. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, The saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Now I said this is the word of the Lord, and I've heard a few mutters. But those few mutters expressed a response that is uttered by the worldwide church across 20 centuries that most of us have lost. Let's restore it. The response is this. After the scripture is read, the one reading says, this is the word of the Lord. And the whole church responds, thanks be to God. Isn't that great? Instead of just one voice at the front, some participation. Let's try it again. This is the word of the Lord. All over the country. Let's go for it. That part was free. (laughs) The account of the conversion of the Samaritan woman of John 4 is full of interest on many fronts. For a start, John undoubtedly intends us to see a contrast between Nicodemus in the previous chapter and this woman in the fourth chapter. He was learned... Powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. 
She is unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruling member of the Sanhedrin. She is a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast, and they both need Jesus. And I don't think we'll come to grips with what Jesus here says about worship until we see what he says about worship in the context of her conversion. The setting you'll know full well, verses 1 to 6. Jesus thinks it's expedient to leave Judea behind and head north. So that's what he does, returning to Galilee. And in between Judea and Galilee on the map is Samaria. Some Jews avoided Samaria. They disliked the Samaritans so much that they crossed the Jordan River, went up the other side, and came back again. But Jesus goes up. In fact, the text says, rather remarkably, he had to go through Samaria. Well, he had to go through Samaria if he was going as the crow flies. He could have gone the other way. So one suspects that this had to has a divine imperative behind it. That is, he's doing his father's will. This was determined. And so, around about noon, he is at the well in Sychar that had initially come from Jacob. He sat down by the well. The particular word for well that is used is not the ordinary word. There are two words that are quite common. One is referring to a well that is full of relatively still water, just picked up by groundwater. The other word is used where there's running water at the bottom of the well, a spring of some sort, keeping it fresh. That's not insignificant for reasons we'll see in a moment. So, now let's follow the storyline in several steps. Number one, a lost soul who pursues material necessities, not spiritual necessities. A lost soul who pursues material necessities, not spiritual necessities. Verses 7 to 15. We read, when a Samaritan woman came to drink water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? There's no bucket, as it turns out. And his disciples have gone away. They usually look after his needs. They've gone to buy food. The woman finds the request doubly surprising. Jesus was a Jew, she a Samaritan. And there was no love lost between the two. The Samaritans, you may recall, were a mixed breed. The northern tribes of Israel had been captured, taken into captivity in 721 BC. The leaders taken off, and then the superpower at the time, Assyria, brought in people from other countries, and they intermingled, and as a result, the religion became really quite inconsistent and broken. So at this time, the Samaritans believed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, were the word of God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The rest of the Old Testament they didn't acknowledge. So all the bit about the rising Davidic kingship and the importance of Jerusalem, they didn't believe any of that. What they believed was that when they first came into the promised land, then, then where they entered at Shechem and, and Mount Gedizim and Ebal, where people sang antiphonally back and forth the blessings and curses of God, that, that was really the appropriate place to build a temple. So in in, in due course, they built a temple. In the second century before Christ, the Jews went in and smashed it. So for racial reasons, for religious reasons, for competitive reasons, the Jews and the 
Samaritans could barely be civil with each other. When it says they had no dealings with each other, the expression used means they didn't even use utensils together. They, they wouldn't share a spoon, let alone a straw at McDonald's. And yet this man is a Jew who, in addition to being a foreigner, is asking something from her, a woman, not socially done, using utensils, a bucket, that would be then shared. You see, on every score, this is fairly outrageous behavior. What she doesn't know about Jesus on the point is a pair of things. First, Jesus is very good at breaking social taboos. You don't have to read far in the Gospels before you find him doing it all the time. Friend of sinners and publicans and street women. Unbelievable. Moreover, Jesus was so powerful, so transformative, that far from being contaminated by uncleanness, he cleaned the unclean. That was the point of half of the, the leper stories. He touched the lepers, which you weren't supposed to do, and he didn't thereby become unclean. They became clean. He comes into our broken lives, and instead of being contaminated, he purifies. She understood none of that. Verse 10, Jesus' initial response is wonderfully ambiguous. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. As opposed to dead water? Yes, yes. Do you see, living water was one of the ways they spoke of moving water, fresh water, spring water. And of course, that's what lay at the bottom of this well. That's why this particular word for well was chosen. He would have given you Fresh, living, spring-fed water. But at the same time, as the narrative goes on, this living water turns out to be not stuff at the bottom of the well after all. It's water that gives eternal life, transformed life. This, of course, depends on an Old Testament background that this woman wouldn't have picked up, not with her Samaritan background, but John's readers are supposed to pick up. Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Our rejection of God does not mean nothing. It means we choose other gods. That's called idolatry. And all those idols produce no life at all. Or Zechariah 14.8, anticipating the end times, living water will flow from Jerusalem. Here the living water is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Holy Spirit that only Jesus can provide. She catches none of this. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. No, it was about 100 feet. It's still about 100 feet. You can go and visit it to this day. It's about 100 feet down. And you don't have a bucket? And you're offering me living water? Hmm? And then a taunt. You're making this offer, but are you such a hot shot? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? And drank from it himself? Provided enough for his livestock? She's really saying that he's pompous and empty. Jesus doesn't back down. 
Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Doesn't Isaiah 12 say that with joy God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation? The imagery is already rich in the Old Testament, do you see? They will never hunger or thirst, Psalm Isaiah 49 says. Or in the well-known words of Isaiah 55, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy money and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Come, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Many, many images of this sort where in food and drink, in water and hope, there are pictures of the salvation still to come when the Messiah shows up. But this woman is blind. She has no resonance with any of these texts. She's still thinking at the material level. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here for it to draw water. It's a lot of work, you know. For there are some lost souls who pursue material necessities and have no sensitivity whatsoever to spiritual necessities. None. None. And it must be admitted that as our culture moves farther and farther away from its Judeo-Christian roots, this pattern becomes more common all the time. All of life and its significance is bound up with the things of this world order, this set of years, threescore years and ten. How many even genuine Christians, those who truly do trust the Lord Jesus, think about all of their life's decisions and priorities and prospects in terms of 50 billion years from now? Laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. Ultimate questions are often reduced to small vision. I remember I was uh, being driven by a limo driver a few years ago. That doesn't happen very often, but I was doing something for one of these TV programs where they have to bring in a conservative evangelical once in a while to keep the ratios up. <laughs> and this limo driver was taking me to my hotel, and I was trying to chat him up a bit, talk to him about Jesus. And um, I asked him uh, how things were going in his life, and uh, he said, well, it's been a bit difficult recently. I said, oh, what's, what's the matter? Well, he said, it's, it's, it's my daughter. Well, what's the problem with your daughter? Well, he said, she's my only child. She's, she's 33. Uh, she, she wasn't married until about a year and a half ago. Uh, nice girl and all that, but just wasn't married. Finally ma met the man of her dreams, and they got married, and now she's, she's, she's got cancer and it's terminal. She'll be dead in six weeks. I said to him, I am so sorry. I wish there's something I could do to help you, but I really would like to ask you a question. He said, what is it? Would you view the tragic death of your daughter differently? If you knew a way to be absolutely sure 
that you can transcend death and live forever with God. Oh, he said, I know just what you mean, he said. I'd like her to come back as a butterfly. All my brilliant steps, methodical evangelism, <laughs> passed each other like ships in the night. Different planets we were on. Don't you find that in Christian witness increasingly in this biblically illiterate age? Almost no points to hang on to anywhere, do you know? And it's partly because everything is bound up with this age. It's bound up with this vague notion called spirituality that's got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. It's all got to do with my truth and has nothing to do with the truth. Just like this poor wretch of a woman. Here then is something we must learn about worship. Many people pursue the wrong thing. Even in worship, as we'll see. Number two. A lost soul who pursues self-distancing theological debate, not personal self-exposure. Let me repeat that. A lost soul who pursues self-distancing theological debate, not personal self-exposure. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, just look at verses 16 and 20. That's what it says. Jesus seems to change subject Abruptly, he tells her, go, call your husband and come back. Bang, out of the blue. And yet this change of subject, abrupt as it is, turns out not to be artificial. The Samaritan woman has failed so far to see who Jesus is or the nature of the gift, the living water that he is offering. Here Jesus is saying, in effect, that she also misunderstands the true nature and demands of her own need, the real nature of her self-confessed thirst. She is aware of thirst, but it's a physical thirst. She does not even acknowledge the real nature of the deepest thirst that human beings can have, thirst for the living God. She, she sees none of it. And she's not going to see it until she comes to grip with her sin. She's not going to see it. Of course, by saying this, not only is he putting her ever so gently into a really embarrassing position, but he's also displaying something of his own power. How does he know her background? He just met her. I have no husband, she replied. How might Jesus have responded? He might have said, you lying lady. Can't even tell the truth, huh? No wonder you're damned. But it's amazing how gentle he is. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus is able to put his finger on the sin and force her to see it without being mean. Despite his immaculate purity, 
He is not condescending. Despite his perfect and exhaustive knowledge of her state, he is still winsome. It's a remarkable passage. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to figure out my background. Yeah, I'm, I'm admitted. You, you got that one right. So what does she do? Does she say, can you help me with my sin? Does she say, there's no help for someone like me? Does she say, I know all kinds of sleaze balls around that are just as bad as I am. It's just that I got caught. Does she say, actually in our village there are several people that are sleeping around. It's just that they haven't had the divorce. At least I was clean about it. What does she say? What does she do? Does she deal with the issue that Jesus himself has brought up? Does she face her sin? No. She wants to debate theology instead. Uh, you're a Jew, aren't you? Hmm? Our ancestors uh, worshipped on this mountain. We think that's the right thing to do, you know? We're Samaritans. You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. She's happy to talk about Jerusalem as a theological and revelatory problem. She's happy to enter into discussions about the nature of worship. But by any Christian understanding of worship, she doesn't want to worship. Not yet. She's a lost soul who pursues self-distancing theological debate. Theological discussion so she doesn't have to face anything in her own life. It's self-distancing, do you see? Rather than expose herself to herself. Judging by the speed with which she takes the conversation in this direction, she finds this sort of conversation more appealing than the line Jesus was following. After all, there were major theological differences between Jews and Samaritans, as I've said. And she is much more comfortable talking theological shop than she is facing her need of Christ in order to receive this living water. And here, too, there are many, many modern parallels. One of the hardest things to do today is get across sin. I've been doing university missions now in various parts of the world for about 40 years. Sunday night, I'll be speaking on the campus of Berkeley University. Let me tell you, the new generation of university students is, so far as biblical knowledge is concerned, bone ignorant. They don't know the Bible has two testaments. They've never heard of Abraham. And if they've heard of Moses, they either think of Charlton Heston or the new cartoon figure. They just don't know. And if I try to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, they will sit there and say, is that what you believe? Oh, that? That's very interesting. Or the deity of Christ? Oh, well, that's a big step to swallow that one, but it's, it, it, it's interesting. Or the resurrection from the dead? Or judgment at the end of the age? 
Oh, it's all very interesting. They, they, they've never heard that before. Nobody ever explained that to me. They don't get mad. They don't even ask any difficult questions. They don't know enough to ask difficult questions. It's the conservatives in the audience who ask the, the difficult questions because they know enough to, to want some extra answers. They, they can sidetrack the entire Q&A afterwards. You know, you're dealing with creation and the magnificence of God, and they'll say, sir, are you a supersessionist or not? <laughs> but the non-Christians don't ask the difficult questions. The only thing that really makes them mad, really angry, is talk about sin. We can argue the nature of tolerance. We can argue the nature of epistemology. We can argue the nature of evidence. We can talk the nature and characteristics of God. We can compare religions. We can do all of those things, and it's all very interesting. They want to get involved. They're quite prepared to assess your apologetics, but they don't want to talk about sin. And I don't think you can actually talk about worship until you can talk about sin. Unwittingly, this woman has slipped in the worship through the back door. She wants to talk about worship in terms of location. Your tradition versus my tradition. Jerusalem versus these mountains. Jews versus Samaritans. But not talk about sin. Here is a lost soul who pursues self-distancing theological debate, not personal self-exposure. Number three. Here we find in the third place a God who pursues true worshipers, not true worship. Here is a God who pursues true worshipers, not worship. That's slightly overstated, but you'll see the point in a moment. Verses 21 to 26. We need to follow the flow of reasoning carefully to grasp the whole argument. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That is, there's a shift in the ages coming. We're at a turning point in redemptive history. We are at a place now where the old debate, whether the Jews have got it right or the Samaritans have got it right, whether Gedadzim and Ebal are right or Jerusalem is right, that whole debate is becoming obsolete. Because that entire debate turned on where God had designated the special place where he would meet with his people. Jesus then adds... Verse 22, nevertheless, in terms of that old debate, he says, in effect, you Samaritans are wrong. You worship what you do not know. It's possible to worship wrongly because you don't have a true knowledge of the living God. The implication is that for worship to be valid, the one you are worshiping must be the God who is there. You can have false worship that is astonishingly professional and entirely empty. Don't you think that the liturgies composed by the Samaritans were appealing? At least to other Samaritans, if not to the Jews. No, no, no. On the historical front, Jesus makes a distinction. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is not a, a question of cultural imperialism. It's a question of revelation. And in the context of worship in the heritage of the Jews, the temple was at the center of it. The Jews were supposed to gather in Jerusalem three times, sometimes four times a year for the great feasts. And people approached God by the sacrifices that God himself had ordained, by the priestly system that God himself had set forth, descendant from Aaron, by the sacrifice that God himself had prescribed on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which could be sacrificed in front of the temple but whose blood could only be brought in by the designated high priest beyond the veil onto the top of the Ark of the Covenant once a year on the prescribed day only by one man. It was all structured and ordained. And Jesus implicitly says, so far as the past is concerned, that was the context in which corporate worship was to be undertaken. It was undertaken within the structure of what we now call the Old Covenant. But after all, 600 years before this takes place. Jeremiah predicted the coming of a new covenant. And as Hebrews 8.13 says, as soon as he announced the new one, in principle, he had made the old one old. In principle, that which is old is already obsolete. Just a matter of time till you push it over. Of course, there are points of continuity between the new and the old, but the point is it's a new covenant that's coming. But so far as the Old Covenant was concerned, it was highly structured, highly localized, bound up with the presence of God, and initially with the tabernacle, then the temple, where the glory of God manifested Him in spectacular display, such that when the temple was first built at the time of Solomon, the glory was so powerful that the priests and the Levites had to scatter. They couldn't stay in the building. The glory was so tremendous. That was the context of worship. If you wanted to talk about worship, that was the context in which you, of course, you could pray on your own and there were private prayers and so on. But if you were going to gather with the people of God, then you did it at the temple. That was the nature of the old covenant. But Jesus says, a time is coming, verse 23, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What does that mean? In this context, then, true worshipers, under these changed circumstances, now with the dawning of a new covenant, are not geographically bound. They're not tied to the temple. This is not saying that before Jesus' death and resurrection there were no true worshipers. Clearly, there were true worshipers under the old covenant, as under the new there are true worshipers. But it is saying that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, true worshipers need not go up to the temple. Why not? Well, John's whole gospel makes that point. Two chapters earlier, in chapter 2, Jesus insists that he is the temple. The temple was the great meeting place between God and sinners where God displays his glory and allows sinners to draw near by means of the sacrifice that he himself has ordained. 
Not anymore. Jesus is the great meeting place between God and sinners. As he himself is the true sacrifice that God has prescribed. As he himself is the true priest who mediates between God and sinners. Everything's changed. It's no longer a question of location, a God-ordained spot. It's now localized in King Priest Jesus. Worship in spirit, in the spirit. Not merely genuinely. We often quote these words, Lord, grant that we might worship you truly today in spirit and in truth, meaning roughly with authenticity. I don't think that's the point of this expression at all. It turns in part on what is meant by the next verse, verse 24. God is spirit. This is not simply saying that God is a spirit, as if it's giving some sort of ontological shape to God. He is not matter, he is spirit, something like that. Nor is this a complete description of his metaphysical properties or something of that order. Rather, in the context, it is saying that God is incorporeal. He's not localized. He's not domesticated. Not even domesticated by the temple that he himself ordains. Solomon understood that. At the dedication of the temple a thousand years earlier, he prayed, God Even the highest of heavens, the heavens of heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You see, the constant danger with a a corporeal temple was that you start thinking that God is localized. But God is not localized. He's spirit. You can't domesticate him. I worry about people who treat halls like this as sanctuaries. As if somehow they've got an extra holy patch. Am I saying something offensive here? It's a holy place because God is here with his people. But sometimes his people aren't here. And God is outside just as much as he's here. He's incorporeal. He's spirit. And God has not ordained under the terms of the new covenant, thou shalt meet in buildings with nice acoustics and pipe organs. For the first couple of centuries, the church didn't have any buildings, yet the people of God still met and worshipped. The antitype to the assembly of the Old Testament is the assembly of the New Testament. It's the church. It's the church, the people of God. Meeting and assembly. God is spirit. And we must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is, God is... Not corporeal, one remembers passages like Isaiah 31.3, the Egyptians are men and not God, their horses are flesh and not spirit, but God is spirit. You see, they have their limitations, they're bound up with their little bodies doing their little warlike things, whereas God is spirit, he's, he's invisible, he's powerful, he's not reducible to the temple, he is divine as opposed to human, he is life-giving, he is the spirit of God in the Old Testament. So in spirit and truth means our worship must be essentially God-centered, not temple-centered, essentially God-centered in terms of the covenant that he himself has disclosed under which we live and die. 
God, who has disclosed himself in Jesus Christ. Now, under the terms of the new covenant, the word made flesh, the ultimate exposition of what God is like. The one, John 14 says, who is the truth. We must worship in spirit and in truth. So true worshipers, Jesus says, are being released from a style of worship focused on the temple. After all, Old Testament prophets spoke of a time when the whole earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in the spectacular vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, the whole city of Jerusalem is built like a cube. How weird is that? You seen any cities designed like a cube? What's going on? Well, the point is there's only one cube in the Old Testament. It's the most holy place. To say that the new Jerusalem where all the people of God gather is like a cube is to say that we all get into the most holy place. We don't need a temple anymore. We don't need a veil. There's no, there's no priest standing in the way. We're all in the presence of the living God then and forever in the new heaven and the new earth in, in the most holy place in the cube, in, in, in the most holy place in the presence of God. Or to put it another way, John says, I saw no temple in that city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So worshipers then are released from a style of worship focused on the temple and now, focused on Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the living God we have through him, secured by him who is the way and the truth and the life, the spirit whom he bestows, all themes that are worked out progressively through the whole of the Gospel of John. The Samaritan woman catches enough of this that she realizes there are messianic overtones. I don't understand all this, but I know the Messiah is coming. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The ultimate disclosure and the implicit question, of course, is whether she will trust him. We need to pause and think for a moment about what this means. This text says that Jesus is looking for true worshipers. Not true worship but true worshipers. And true worshipers in this context means those who worship God according to the structure of the new covenant that is no longer bound up with debates about Samaria and Judea, things like that, but bound up with the one who is himself the temple of God. You see, in the Old Testament, as we've seen, worship was bound up under the Old Covenant with the temple. It was localized. But then you read a text like Romans 12. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's sacrificial temple language, don't you see? That you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Not a temple in sight. That is, all of life is bound up with worship. We offer ourselves to God. We don't go in through proxy, a priest. 
once a year or three times a year, offering an animal in proxy, we offer ourselves to the living God. That's the very structure of the new covenant. Thus, if we are laying ourselves before the living God, saying wholeheartedly, by faith, through his grace, here I am, have me, do what you want with me, we are worshiping. And if we are singing a glorious hymn, but meanwhile lusting after the person of the opposite sex three pews over, we're not worshiping. When God says he's seeking true worshipers, he means not only worshipers that understand this shift in the covenant so that everything is focused on God as he's disclosed himself in Christ on the cross, but worshipers who give themselves utterly to God in this non-localized way that recognizes who God is, what the truth of the gospel is, who Jesus is as the truth. They confess that Jesus is Lord. They tremble at his word. They're extremely God-centered. So here again is something we must learn about worshiper. Worship. God pursues true worshipers, not mere worship. May I venture on a small excursus here? Hey, I can say what I want. I'm leaving to speak in California. <laughs> we have sometimes developed terminology and understandings which, though I understand them, are actually a bit misleading. We have Worship leaders. What do worship leaders do? Basically, they lead singing and occasionally a biblical text or two and maybe a prayer. After the worship leader comes the preacher. Whatever the preacher is, he's not a worship leader. He's not singing. Now, because of this use of terminology, which you cannot find warranted anywhere in the New Testament, you just can't find it, some people have flipped and gone the other side. What they've said is, well, in the light of Romans chapter 12, the fact that we're to offer our bodies constantly as a living sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual worship, in the light of the fact that we don't have a temple and so worship is all the time. Worship is everything that we do. Worship should embrace all of life, our, our thought and word and deed, our, our work at home, our family relationships, our, our witness at work, our, uh, the, the way we pick up the, the, the trash. Everything we do is offered up to God. We're, we're, we're his. That, that's, that's worship. All of life is worship. So you can't say you come to church to worship. So you ask back to these folk who have flipped the switch the other way, and you say, what do you come to church for? And they say something like, well, for edification, to, to edify one another. So does that mean, therefore, that we worship all week, then when we come to gather as a church assembly, we don't worship, then we edify one another? There's something wrong with that somewhere, too, don't you see? No, no. The biblical model, it seems to me, is something like this. We are to offer ourselves constantly up to God. The focus of Christian worship is not localized. We are to offer ourselves constantly up to God. In that sense, there's worship that ought to be going on all the time in all of our lives. And where there's not, we should be repenting and asking for forgiveness and worshiping in that sense, going back to the cross again and again. And then when we gather on the Lord's Day, we continue our worship, but now corporately. 
corporately and usually in a more focused array. Oh, we've had times of reading the Bible during the week and meditating on God and trying to make the right decisions in the light of God's word and the like, but now we come under his word corporately, not just in private devotions, and so there is now corporate worship. But surely that's the whole service, not just the singing. So, do we worship God when we stand up to sing? Then we sit down, the, the pastor opens his Bible and he starts to preach and starts to... We stop worshiping then, we're just learning and getting edified. Or surely, 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 we worship as we hear the word of God and remember him who has said, to these will I look, they who are, of, who are humble and of a contrite spirit and who tremble at my word. So I'm nervous about making song leaders worship leaders. I think it distorts our theology of worship. It reduces it into something too small. To worship is to sing. Well, God knows it's a big place for singing in Scripture, both under the Old Covenant and the New. That's not my brief to talk about that, but, but much more could be said. But to reduce that then to worship is to miss the sweep of what Jesus says in a passage like this. It's to miss the sweep of Romans 12. It's to miss the change in the structure from the old covenant to the new. Do not think of yourself as a worship leader unless everyone who leads in any respect the people of God in corporate worship are also worship leaders, including the person taking up the offering and the person who's preaching and the, the, the person who's reading the announcements, you're gathered together as the people of God to edify one another under the lordship of Christ, renew your covenantal vows, and all the rest under the hearing of the word of God. And you worship corporately. Now the last two I'll deal with more quickly. A convert who pursues Christ-centeredness, not self-centeredness. A convert who pursues Christ-centeredness, not self-centeredness. Verses 27 to 30, and then 39 to 42. The disciples show up, and they're shocked. There's Jesus talking to a woman alone, and a Samaritan at that, who's breaking all the taboos. We don't understand the first one very well in our culture, where we're ready to talk to almost anybody at any time about almost anything. But you travel in the Middle East, for example, you travel in some parts of East Asia and you don't talk to a woman in an elevator or anywhere else unless you've been properly introduced. Do you see? Here's this woman having a chat by this, this man having a chat with a woman by a well and just the two of them. And she's a Samaritan at that on every front. This is a bit of a shocker. But no one says anything. Less a matter of trusting Jesus' judgment than of biding their time till she's left. And then others... Other matters seem to get introduced. She leaves her water jar behind, whether because she forgot it or she left it for them so that they could get some water, either way. But then she goes and says, verse 29, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Isn't that spectacular? What has he told her that she's done? Had a lot of husbands. That's all she said. But for her to summarize that conversation with Jesus in terms of, come and told me a man. Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Means that 
Her conscience has now been quickened. She looks back on her life and all she sees is the sleaze. That's my whole life. And he put his finger right on it. Could this be the Messiah? And the townspeople know, of course. The townspeople know that her life was full of sleaze. It's a small town. And so some want to meet this dude. Many of the Samaritans, verse 39, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Not only does she admit it, she is in some sense borne down by it and raised up somehow afresh by him whom she now begins to wonder if he might possibly be the Messiah. This doesn't mean she has all her Christian theology sorted out, but her life is now reorienting around Jesus. Do you see, there is now in her a shame for her sin and a Christ-centeredness. Could this be the Messiah? This is the man who put his finger on my life. This is the one who pointed out my sin. This is the one who has changed my entire perspective. There is a Christ-centeredness, no longer a self-centeredness. A self-centeredness before that was ready to talk theology but not deal with sin. A self-centeredness before that was ready to debate and put down this foreign guy who is actually being a bit rude. Now she, 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 she sees this man as, as the hope in her life. She is Christ-centered. She is not self-centered anymore. That's why the best Christian witness is out of the overflow of unabashed delight in the Lord. Apologetics at its best is not primarily a matter of giving good arguments, not least in our culture where the quality of the argumentation isn't nearly as important as the winsomeness. There is something irrepressibly lovely about a Christian, a man or a woman, who is absolutely full of the delight and joy of the Lord. Shall forests hide their beauty? Shall rainbows fade to gray? Shall mountain streams stop dancing? Shall lambs forget to play? And shall I keep silent at grace beyond degree? Before the cross I count as loss what once was dear to me. And out of this matrix the testimony comes and she bears witness to Jesus. And so, thus, in the context of the previous discussion, she is worshipping. She is ascribing true worth to the God who has disclosed himself in Jesus. Evangelism at its best is worship. And finally, a savior who pursues his father's will, not his own. Who pursues his father's will and not his own comforts. Verses 31 to 38. The disciples are trying to deal with Jesus' physical needs. Eat something. We've, we've bought some food now. Have a bite. But he replies, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They, still thinking on the purely material plane, wonder if perhaps this woman has slipped him something. Could someone have brought him food? 
My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Sometime when you have leisure, read through the Gospel of John and mark all the places where it's very clear that Jesus' purpose in coming was to do his Father's will. End of John 14. The world must learn that I always obey him. Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. Here, my food, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. His food, what sustains him, is to please his Father. And you see, in that sense, Jesus worships his Father. That's also clear from the temptation narratives in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. Jesus, the God-man, worships his Father and perfectly does his will with an obedience to the will of God that sustains life and brings him to death and resurrection life. The point is that on ordinary reckoning, the harvest is still some time off. Verse 35, don't you folks have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. Now, what is happening in Jesus' ministry is already the beginning of this new age of simultaneous sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping. As in the vision of Amos chapter 9, verse 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will, over, will be overtaken by the plowman. In other words, you, you reap the, 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 the ground and already the plowman is already right on your heels, plowing it all up to put in more seed, and right behind them comes the reaper again. There's so much harvest, you, you, you just can't stop sowing and reaping. The reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter, the one overtreading uh, over the grapes. It's a, it's a colorful picture of, of what happens as God's blessings under the new covenant multiply and multiply and multiply. It's, it's a way of indicating that the final eschatological age is already dawning. Moreover, this imagery allows for reapers other than Jesus. Jesus introduces himself as, as this one who has come to do the Father's will. But the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work along the whole sweep of redemptive history. And now, in this dawning new age, you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Isn't that a spectacular vision? Here, too, is something we must learn about worship. It is an enormous privilege to follow a Savior who pursues his Father's will, not for his own comforts, but to go to the cross that we might have life and worship him in spirit and truth. And now we worship him as we take up our cross and follow him and sow and reap to his glory. Let us pray. Merciful God, in all of our wrestlings in these two or three days over the nature of worship, help us not to forget the fundamentals but to worship Christ Jesus. To worship you, our maker, redeemer, and judge. 
in spirit and truth. For Jesus' sake and his blood-bought people's good. Amen.